desperately need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Tops Market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. If we're going to have some real healing, we've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. And good morning, this is Dave Debo. Coming up a little later on the program, we're going to talk about fatherhood. Antoine Johnson will be here from the Buffalo Prenatal Perinatal Network. He'll be joined by Thomas O'Neill White, talking for a good length of time about some of the initiatives they have that support fatherhood. And they'll look at the narrative, too, some of the myths that are out there. That's coming up in roughly half an hour. But first, we have a black history story for you. Steve Peraza is here. He's an assistant professor of history and social studies at SUNY Buffalo State University. And he's working on, or at least pitched the idea for, a book contrasting the traditional view of civil rights struggles that we hear of in the South with the way it unfolded here in Buffalo. So we thought we'd look at that. We'd look at some of the conditions and some of the history in Black Buffalo. Steve, thanks for coming by. Thanks for being here. Dave, thanks for having me. Thank you. Before we probe the differences, perhaps, between the civil rights struggle that everyone's familiar with in the South and the civil rights struggle in Buffalo. Let's look at some of the the history because I'm betting you'll say that that's the underpinnings of it. Describe how we were different before civil rights in ways that, uh, civil rights struggle, in ways that influence the struggle later and make it different later. What were the conditions that we had here that were different from what the South was looking at? Well, here in Buffalo, I like to think of, uh, I like to think of the community in formation in the early 20th century. So uh, here I'm standing on the work of Lillian Williams, who works at UB, wrote this fabulous book about how the black American community coalesced um, during the Great Migrations. And there were a number of self-help organizations that were that were active in bringing those folks here, establishing that community uh, in Buffalo. And so during the, really, the origins of the civil rights movement, when the, when the South is starting to really, uh, black Americans in the South are starting to really galvanize their, their civil rights uh, organizations and strategies, Buffalo is, is, is formulating. It's a different um, moment. We already had organizations, are you saying? But that sounds like they weren't. Uh, the SCLC or the Organized Civil Rights Organizations. No, no these are self-help organizations tied fraternal to fraternal groups. Fraternal groups okay. tied to tied to institutions like churches, and folks are are providing migrants places to stay, uh, op- opportunities for jobs. You know, they're building a community as opposed to uh, and and really focused on that kind of. Uh, self uh, development and self, um, um, up, you know, social uplift was really the the goal of Black American community or organizations in Buffalo 
really around the time that the United States is fighting world wars. Black Americans from the South are starting to travel to places like Buffalo uh, and, or, and or work in war industry. So, I mean, it, Buffalo is in a different stage of development, the Black American community, than in the South where you know, where we have Jim Crow. Social progress, the idea of, of uplifting one's neighbor through these organizations, that, that sounds like it was the root of it. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of the a lot of the focus was on establishing new black America or, or establishing black Americans in a new political, social, cultural context. So that involves uh, bringing them uh, over kind of, um, you know, acculturating to a new to a new uh, context where they may have the right to vote. Um, they they are operating as as participants in the new economy uh, you know they're not tied to sharecropping anymore they're not tied to they're not they're, they're not they may not be witness jim crow racial terrorism in the same ways that they did in the south we didn't have jim crow to the same degree obviously did the south have those kind of organizations or is that what makes us different I think the South certainly did, but they were under they're they're under duress. So they're in, in many respects anchored so deeply in the Black American community as to as as to have a buffer from the the, the white nationalist groups or, or really the you know white groups like the Ku Klux Klan, the white uh, white Knights of Camellia. These folks were targeting uh, signs of Black uh, progress or 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 Black um, affluence in the South. So these organizations, self-help organizations, are are falling into the background. Just you know, they're still operating. They're just you know, not not foregrounded in the way they would have been and were in Buffalo. And I would think that at that time, we're talking what the early the early twentieth century, early twentieth century, nineteen hundred. You know, in nineteen hundred, we'd say that there was a black middle class here in Buffalo that was much more established than elsewhere. No. Well, we have records of of um, well-to-do Black Americans kind of helping to establish the the Niagara movement. Mm-hmm. You know, so even you know, right as the as the turn of the century comes, the 1900s. Yeah, we do have uh, well-to-do middle-class Black Americans in Buffalo. I mean, we have them around the country. Uh, it's just. It, it, I mean, to some degree, these folks are responsible for building a community. So, I mean, they're they're incredibly well positioned to to help folks. All right. So, if that's the underpinnings, then the civil rights struggle comes to all of America. How is it therefore different here? Because the foundation is therefore different here. Well, I think when we look at civil civil rights in Buffalo, I I'm suggesting that we're we're looking at it still happening because because the community uh, was in this state of establishment, 1900 to 1940, um, we see the, the, the modern civil rights movement really taking root around the start of, the, of World War II. And that struggle is, is facing the South in terms of uh, fighting segregation, disfranchisement, and racial terror in the South. Black Americans after World War II are, are see themselves are, are are participating in the economy at a high level, establishing middle, middle class families. So what what ends up happening is when poverty strikes as a result of deindustrialization, Black American communities begin to deteriorate economically. They're they're no longer working living wage jobs, 
and the civil rights movement unveils that in the in the in the in the, the kind of aftermath of uh, of this shock toward the Black American community's economy or or you know communities, that there are heightened levels of segregation in Buffalo. There are heightened levels of, of socioeconomic inequality that result in housing discrimination. And communities are, are, are deteriorating. There's not much investment going into communities that, that have black Americans predominating in them. This is, this is what, what creates civil rights activism among uh, Buffalonians. And that, you know, when I'm thinking about or I'm pitching this book, right, I'm thinking about Buffalonians actually addressing similar issues in similar contexts, so segregation in courts, but then also having expressions of different problems. You know, this housing discrimination case in, in, is, is, is a wrinkle uh, compared to a new wrinkle compared to Southern. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying that there aren't these housing discrimination cases yeah. or, or, or segregation cases in the South, but this is a Buffalonian, a Buffalonian wrinkle. Right. Or even the school desegregation case, 1976. Right. This same. is a same venue. It's a segregate, but it's happening 1976, right? I mean, so federal court, they're challenging segregation laws. It's happening in 76. Discri- the major federal uh, housing discrimination case is happening 89, really 89 and 96. Yeah. They're, they're, they're reverberations of this. And then, you know, this third prong I'm seeing is kind of the formation of black liberation spaces. So black Americans are, are, are insisting upon, for example, an MLK monument. This, is, this precedes MLK Day. You know, so this is 1981, 1983. Yeah. This, this MLK monument comes to existence. And then, uh, of course, we have, we have modern expressions, current expressions like Freedom Wall or, uh, or Broderick Park. Black Americans commemorating freedom, commemorating the Underground Railroad, commemorating liberation from from tyranny or from racism. And all of those things, I think we can argue, is a more recent phenomenon here in Buffalo than they were elsewhere. Does that then mean, uh, if Jim Crow was the elephant in the room and the civil rights movement in the South killed the elephant, that we didn't have as much... um, foment here. We didn't have the elephant, so we didn't have the struggle here. And then the movement ended up being, if not stunted, certainly delayed. Am I, am I sketching out a valid argument there? Yeah, I love what you're saying, except that I, you know, I, I actually argue except, that we do no, have tell me more. Jim Crow North. Yeah, you okay. Know, like, so I, I, I teach my students that if you want to understand Jim Crow in the North, you go back to places like Ohio, where they had black codes that were well established mm. in 1830. You can look at New York where, you know, you, you could be released from slavery, but you would be denied full citizenship. These are New York. This is part of the New York Emancipation Law. So the North already had ways to disfranchise black Americans. Let, let me probe that further. New York law said what? The New York Emancipation, I mean, New York emancipated slaves, right? In, yeah, in yeah. 18, early, really the antebellum period. When New York by 1840 declares that it has no slavery. But the citizenship was limited for former slaves, so they mm-hmm. could—they just couldn't participate in the politi- in the political economy okay. on the same grounds as as others. So, if you think about that, you fast forward past the the, uh, the Civil War, right, eighteen sixty-five. Let's the South is just learning how to have black citizens and disfranchise mm-hmm. them. New York has 
20 we, already, we're, we're, we were already we're doing the empire that. state you know <laughs> <This is laughs> okay. 35 that's 35 years of learning that so if you if it's happening in ohio it's happening in new york it happened in pennsylvania disfranchised or or creating second-class citizens for black americans was already active in the north so to me that's a jim crow north okay in fact i but i bet you any you know i bet you my bottom dollar that some uh some lawmaker in the south studied the black codes of, of ohio to figure out how they were because those black codes in ohio look just like the black codes that happened mm-hmm. in reconstruction in louisiana so i mean there's a so i was all right so that means that there are a whole host of problems that 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 states like new york and ohio have come to understand and 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 and, and fix in order to maintain a kind of white supremacy and so when the the north is actually also in a, in the midst of this great industrialization right if we're thinking about if we're thinking about rearranging the resources of the of of, of the federal government after the civil war uh, we're talking about amplifying and, and increasing industrialization. I mean, the, the the Gilded Age is is really a northern phenomenon. So, you know, in the midst of that, that in the triumph of industrialization, incorporating Black Americans becomes sort of like less important. I mean, they're they're not they're not the main they're not this huge population like they are in the Black Belt states. Does that then mean that the struggle, such as it was? And I'm I'm not I'm not about to sketch the argument that there was no civil rights movement here in Buffalo. Um, obviously, Martin Luther King visited in '68. There were rallies, yeah. there were riots, all of that. I'm, I'm yeah. not trying to say it didn't exist, but was it more latent here? Was it more delayed here? Even? I mean, we 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 presented us a kind of satellite sphere for the civil rights movement. We were we were we were. Uh, we we found expressions of that southern civil rights movement here um i just don't think that w- i wouldn't argue that black americans were mobilizing to fight against civil rights violations at that time the way they are in this next period at that time they're joining a movement that is that is so nationally significant that we're bringing their speakers in you know, but if you, Martin Luther King comes here and there, there's schisms uh, among among yeah. Black American leaders about whether to support him, Black or not. ministers black did ministers, not want right. him here. So right. there's, you know, Buffalo is still trying to arrange its perspective on the modern civil rights movement at the time of the civil rights movement. But they're not they're not actively fighting desegregation. They're actively fighting desegregation through the NAACP and other civil rights organizations following the major victories of the civil rights movement. Um, but you you mentioned you mentioned riots. I mean, I, yeah. I, there I I, I want to stipulate that yeah, Black Americans are recognizing and fighting racism in their in their communities here in Buffalo. Uh, I just I just see the the political mobilization towards civil rights gains happening later. Steve Peraza is here from SUNY Buffalo State University. He's a professor of history and social studies. He's writing a book, or at least. Uh, starting to germinate a book about how Buffalo's civil rights movement is different than the, the traditional narrative that is often sketched out in the South. If our movement was delayed a little bit or maybe not as robust in the 60s, can we then argue that while it has abated elsewhere, it's still percolating more here? Yeah, I mean, this is what I'm... Yes, yes. In fact, I was talking to 
cab driver on the on the way down here, Brenda. I was saying, you know, the civil rights movement is still happening. She she told me you damn right about that. <laughs> so, okay. So yeah, and and I've been I've been uh, playing with the idea of the civil rights movement ending, and I always talk about it ending at Martin Luther King uh, Day. Because I think, oh my God, the the Republicans pushed through a, a, yeah. a federal holiday to celebrate Dr. King, and now there's this sanitized view of what a protester should be like, and it's ten- connected to MLK. So I'm fascinated with the end of the movement. But then, you know, where there are also indicators that the kind of strategies to fight for civil rights gains, the the kinds of mobilizing that that are active in Buffalo to me suggest the kind of mobilizing that was happening. I mean, they're reminiscent to me of the of, of the political mobilization in the South and in targeting issues of civil rights and human rights. So I see the strategies suggesting that we are still in this fight. There are peaceful demonstrations, there are fights in court, there there's mobilization around political causes related to race or identifying race as a as a unifying uh, factor. So all these things I, I think point toward a civil rights movement that's still active here. Um, and, uh, you know, there there are other arguments, too. Do you think that the top shooting on May 14th changed things and, and may have even sparked that movement more? So that's – so I see Jim Crow, right? I, I'm leaning on Leon Litwack. He's a historian of, of, of Reconstruction. He, he, he identifies Jim Crow as having three prongs, uh, segregation, disfranchisement, and racial terrorism. And it was the shooting on May 14th that, that really solidified for me that it's uh, a kind of Jim Crow North idea that that in Buffalo there can be a, a, a terrorist attack based on race um, with, with, with the sole purpose of, of, of having indiscriminate violence committed against this group for a political end to to. to sh- you know, to really shut down the idea and of a black enterprise, of black community, uh, to to slight black life. So that was a moment of real uh, heightened awareness for me, because I, you know, I, I like to I like to think that 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 lynching doesn't happen today, but I have to open the conversation with students about lynching, making this connection, and that it happens all over the country. You know, it, it shines new light on the on the riots that happened in the in the red summer, you know, 1919, right? When black Americans are first getting into the north, places like Chicago, there are these race riots. And really the race riots are white Americans killing black migrants, right? And, and targeting them and telling them they don't want them. Right, anymore. right. So there are manifestations of this in the, in, in the north that I now link toward Jim Crow being a national law or national custom. And the North having expressions of racial terrorism that just aren't the same as lynching. People aren't getting strung up and barbecued. They're getting they're they're getting run out of their neighborhood and their and their buildings torn down. Tell me more about the North South divide, though, because we had certainly our top shooting a couple of years earlier. Uh, there was the Mother Emanuel shooting, certainly in the South. Mm-hmm. I you know Jeremy, I mean, I. We so the the shooting that I think about the most is actually uh, in, in South Carolina, right? Uh, so they, you know this is these two shootings to me are part of a white nationalist history. You know, uh, uh, what, what I see is a growing resistance to what might be termed as black the rise of black affluence and enterprise. I mean, uh, uh, <laughs> what comes to mind is a black bourgeoisie, right? Like uh, uh, the, the great Fraser book. 
so black Americans are in a cultural or are in a cultural high point, I would argue, in, in the United States. The black affluence is not hard to come by on TV. Watch the Grammys just you know, last week. You, right. you listen right. to black American music is really dominating. You know, it's not even to some degree. It's not even black American music. It's, it's American music right. right now. Yeah. You know, uh, so so there are a lot of signs of of kind of cultural change, a reckoning. Uh, there's the the movement. I think Black Lives Matter says something different than 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 civil rights protesters were saying. Civil rights protesters are trying to they're trying to integrate into the the political economy and on an e- on equal terms. Black Lives Matter people are saying, "I can you? I cannot believe you don't see our humanity yet. You know, like yeah. you're still killing us. Are you Black Lives Matter? Right? I think that uh, so we see Black American. I, I I like to play with the idea of Black power and, and you know kind of re reclaiming that term somewhat. We see Black power, and so these shootings of symbols of Black excellence or Black strength are, I think, expressions of a of a latent white nationalism, a fear of where this country is going and the, and the growing strength of non-white Americans in the society. Some of the things that led to the shooting um, were segregation, uh, historical disinvestment, issues that we talk about on this program a lot. Um, that wasn't necessarily a patent gendering thing. That was a pre-existing condition on the East Side. If you're talking about the struggle, if you're talking about the civil rights movement, um, has it been pushing back in Buffalo on those kind of issues longer than we've noticed? Uh, is, has Jim Crow been pushing back on, on uh, organizing? Uh, has has the black community in Buffalo, has Buffalo, we'll just mm-hmm. say it generically, has Buffalo pushed back against disinvestment, pushed back against segregation? Uh, again, in the same way we would view it down in the South. I, I would argue no. I don't think that. That's kind of why I asked the question because yeah, that's what I was thinking Buffalo's too. Buffalo is really not. Uh, but Buffalo is beginning to address. Uh, I think as a city, there, there, there's beginning to be a powerful progressive agenda to kind of improve the the status of everyday citizens using the using the government to to kind of lead us instead of create boundaries. Right. I think the government has had created boundaries in the past. It was it was seen largely as a policing instrument. Mm. And there 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 are people now in Buffalo who see the government as a way of opening doors for the majority of citizens. So, for example, and, you know, you know, there's work been done locally about segregation, how Buffalo becomes so segregated. A lot a lot of that are, you know, we're talking about city institutions and, and county institutions being used to to rearrange neighborhoods, right? Neighborhoods that were once somewhat integrated are now transformed by public housing into neighborhoods that are single groups. Uh, Italians here, Polish here, Black American projects there. You know, these are, you know, so these these laws and, and government agencies in the 30s and 40s, you know, institute a Buffalo that's segregated. That's the city operating. That's state institutions operating in Buffalo, creating a kind of new segregation in, in Buffalo. So I, now, you know, fast forward 70 years, we have a city government that is kind of dealing with that segregation and a, a, a critical mass of black and white activists who demand that there be further desegregation and further investment in these communities. 
And I introduced you, obviously, as a, a history professor at SUNY Buffalo State University, which you are. Yes. But you've also done some work on those sort of issues with the Partnership for Public Good, yes. uh, a research associate there, looking at the issues of policing, looking at the issues of economic development. So in that context, maybe less about history, but in that context, tell me, well, what does Buffalo need? If, if I gave Steve Peraza the magic wand, you wave it, what happens? Oh, that's, I would love that. I would like to see, <laughs> right, I, you know, I would like to see uh, an investment in jobs. I think jobs give people enough discretionary income to, to buy new homes or at least to invest in new housing. But I'd also like to see Buffalo build to the sky. Like, I'm born and raised in New York City, skyscrapers everywhere. But I walk down Main Street and I wonder if we had buildings that were eight to 10 stories, all even, going straight up to UB, like a Park Avenue mm. for Buffalo. You know, how many people could we accommodate? How many jobs could we create? Um, this is a vision, I call it a new urbanism, like rebuilding Buffalo a, a little bit higher and investing in public transportation. Because I, I, I swear we're gonna end up getting migrants from downstate when, when there are natural disasters that ruin the ruined living conditions. I think in Manhattan. So if we it, it will get these migrants, and we'll need more housing, and that'll that'll be another it'll be another uh, gilded age for Buffalo. Except this one won't be gilded, right? We'll we'll think about how to integrate these housing these structures with multiple socioeconomic statuses, so we can we can actually you know through through the kind of housing policies that we develop. And housing policies are. You know, we talked about as high road development, right? High road policies where all people, the employers, the the business owners and, and the workers all get paid. You know, we can we can design policies that allow for folks in the lower for high road economic development, you call it. Right, right. High road economic development. And we could we could ultimately bring in folks who are working class and folks who are part of the elites in some of these buildings down Main Street. Last last question. Are you an optimist? Do you think that this kind of stuff can happen, or is it simply something we need to aspire to? These things happen all the time. Yes, I'm an, I'm an eternal optimist. I mean, these things happen all the time. That's how building that's that's how cities get built. Um, I think our city is is it's time to rebuild our city in many respects. There, we have a lot of advantages that we haven't taken care of just yet, or that we haven't used the opportunity to. To, to advance. So I, I, not, I don't think that these, I'm not optimistic. I think this is exactly how reform happens. But in order for that to happen, we need the capital, right? Do we have, do we have the people, do we have the investors um, to make that happen? It, it might even be a case of if you build it, they will come. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if we have the money for the ball field right now. Well, I'm you know, I'm a dreamer, so I don't know All if right. we have the money yeah. either. But uh, you know, I, I know we have the people. I know we have the people, and I I've been around artists, I've been around entrepreneurs, I've been around political activists, and and they they have visions that that work. I'm inspired by them. I know we have the people, and with the people, we have everything. All right, fair enough. Thanks so much for your time. This Thanks was a, for me. A, a great discussion. One of these times, we have to get you back. I know uh, Thomas O'Neill White is really keen on looking at 
hip-hop and culture, and I know that's something you teach at Buff State, so we'll, we'll hook the two of you up before we uh, leave this building, I promise. I'd love that. Thank you. Speaking of Thomas, he's coming up next, of course. We're talking about the fatherhood programs of the Buffalo Prenatal Perinatal Network. Antoine Johnson is standing by. Stay with us. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. Hey, Southern Ontario. Thank you for listening. When your company supports WBFO, your NPR station, our international audience will support your business. We will, too, by continuing to provide the quality local content that both sides of the Peace Bridge enjoy. Learn more by calling Bill Sauer at 716-845-2201. PBS Kids fun and educational content is available wherever you are in Western New York, whenever you want. Live stream the channel at wned.org slash pbskids. And while you're there, you can play games, watch videos from your favorite shows like Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, Molly of Denali, and Alma's Way. And you'll find resources for parents and teachers. Visit wned.org slash pbskids today. WNED Classical has been conducting interviews of their own on YouTube with the classical music community. Have you ever wondered what goes into the performances you hear on WNED Classical? Head on over to our Buffalo Toronto Public Media YouTube page to see the collection of interviews that we've orchestrated. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss the next one. This is Buffalo What's Next where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And we are back. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Thomas O'Neill White, and I'm talking fatherhood with Buffalo Fatherhood Initiative Program Manager Antoine Johnson. Antoine, thank you for being with us today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Um, First off, being a parent is not easy. Um, And uh, once again, I'd like to apologize to my mom and dad uh, (laughs) uh, for the thousandth time. Antoine, you're a father. What does fatherhood mean to you? Yeah, for me, uh, it. I think the first word that comes to my mind is commitment. Um, you know, it is a, a day in and day out grind of being commit, committed and involved. Um, the other word that comes to my mind is is presence. Uh, we talk about in our, our fatherhood groups the I, this idea that you can be um, physically present but emotionally absent. And so one of one of my things is is making sure I'm showing up you know, both physically and mentally. Now, what does that, what does that look like? You know, being, being there more than physically, being present, mm-hmm. being there emotionally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the things for me is, you know, just kind of getting in my kids world. Um, more so my daughter, I have two kids. Uh, my, my youngest is Nathan, who's six months and my daughter, who's, uh, she'll be three next month. But, but just, getting in her world right whether that's playing with their toys or doing silly things and i think you know going back to your question being there for me is about doing the things that my kids enjoy and the things that i believe will help to promote their growth and development 
And you are the program director for the Buffalo Fatherhood Initiative, which is part of uh, Buffalo Prenatal and Perinatal Network. The Fatherhood Initiative is relatively new, and can you talk about its development yes. since you've been there? Yes, yes, yes. So I started late 2017. Our ED um, and fearless leader, Luann Brown, was the one who brought in the funding through Oshai, uh, found, through the Oshai Foundation, excuse me. And she really just had a heart for um, and a desire to see more services for fathers and families because she didn't feel like that there was a lot of stuff out there for men um, with children. And, and she was right. I mean, there are not many father-specific programs in our region. In fact, the entire country, uh, there is, a, there is a, a scarcity of programs that we have, like the one we have. What are some of your top priorities of the initiative? You know, one of one of the, the biggest things for us is, one, making fathers feel valued. Um, many times I feel in our communities and society in general, uh, fathers are often overlooked and undervalued in their role as a caregiver and a presence in the house more often than not. When, when I thought about the word father, I thought about breadwinner, provider, the one who brings in the bacon and, and not a whole lot else. Right, right, right. And so we really have done some work behind the scenes, so to speak, around create or changing the narrative where fathers are nurturers. Um, they're not only providers, they, they care. Um, we have fathers who they, they cry sometime about their relationships with their children, especially when they don't have much of one for one reason or another. And so we, we really want to impress the fact that fathers are more than breadwinners. Now, how, since, since you started there, have, have those priorities morphed at all? Have they, or have, are there new priorities each year? How does that work? Yeah, so I think the the priorities have matured in a way. Uh -huh. um, we we've done um, other projects throughout the year. Um, in fact, we this year we partnered with Black Boys Free to their organization, and one of the things that we we do is our, our fatherhood coordinator goes out and um, he sits with the children and their father, fathers and, and, and moms too at times in the barbershops and they're working on literacy development. Um, but one of the things I love to see is, is uh, the fathers out there um, being engaged with their kids um, around literacy development, which is something that dads are doing every day. Uh, and I think what, what is happening is, is again, we're, we're, we're helping to highlight the fact that fathers are engaged and specifically, you know, fathers of color, too. And just as an aside, we are going to have uh, Rakaya and Jalicia from uh, Black Boys Read 2 on next week. Nice. So look out for that. How, how important is it to change the narrative of the absentee father and more so the absentee black father? Oh, it's imperative. Um, there is this, like you said, stereotype narrative that black fathers are not as involved as some of their other um, counterparts. And so um, I think that it is critically important to highlight two different things. Right. One is the fact that this this narrative is not new. Um, I think in a lot of ways, it's, it's just carried over over the decades. Uh, we think about uh, or I think about the Daniel Patrick Moynihan report um, back in the uh, 1960, 
19, around 1965, um, and where they talk about the, the number of out-of-wedlock births and African-American families and how that contributed to a lot of the um, absenteeism when it comes to fathers and why we see some of the delinquent behavior that we see with, with black children and, and things of that nature. Uh, but I think one of the things that has not been highlighted is the fact that even if when fathers, black fathers specifically, don't live in the household, being, you know, we categorize them as non-residential fathers, that, that they're still involved. They're still they're still doing what they need to do for their children, even if the, if the relationship is not there with mom. In 2006 through 2010, CDC did a study, and one of the things that they found was that black fathers compared to other races were actually more involved when it came to things related to direct care. So when we think about taking your kids to the school or bathing or mealtime, um, things of that nature, they, they're around, right, regardless of whether or not they live with their children. Do you impart those numbers and, you know, the those those past attitudes about absentee fathers? Do you impart that on your group? You let them know, this is what they think about you. This is how you and this is how you got to move forward. So we don't explicitly. I think that there is this shared awareness that 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 is the narrative we share statistics about uh when fathers are not involved uh like you know children are twice as likely to drop out of school teens are seven times more likely to become pregnant uh, families are four times more likely to, to experience poverty um, because we want to emphasize their value and what they bring to the table when they are around especially when they don't live in the household. But I think the uh, the other part of that, we you know, I, I think that's like a shared um, awareness. We're going to take a sh- short break in four minutes. But um, before this break, I want to ask, is there a mental health factor for fathers with with newborn children? We uh, we talk a lot about postpartum depression in women. But is there a similar uh, issue with with dads? Yes, yes. So studies show that one out of 10, every 10 men will experience um, that, that, that sort of depression after the child is born. Um, so the, yeah, that's there. That's relevant. And what's, what's the, you know, how, how, do, how do fathers get over that? What's the, uh, you know, what's the prognosis with that? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. I, I don't know that there's one way. I think that a lot of men... Um, you know, have opportunities for things related to therapy, uh, support groups, uh, family members, what have you. Uh, just anecdotally, I think the biggest thing would probably just that closeness with their partner and having other people that they can uh, share their thoughts with and so forth. And talk to me a little bit about the annual report. Uh, from 2022. Over 50 professionals were trained last year to engage and serve men and children. What kind of training goes into that and what are the best practices for serving these fathers and children in the program? Yeah, so that training was actually facilitated by one of our partners out of South Carolina who does uh, work with fathers and fatherhood practitioners uh, on a national level. And uh, what he does is he talks about the uh, just the reality of biases that are out there toward fathers when they they go to various service providers uh, and how we as service providers or practitioners can be more intentional about helping fathers feel welcomed um, and giving them 
um, a voice when, when it matters. For example, when we're going to the doctor's appointments or the prenatal appointments with our partners and um, the importance of them um, really just being present. <laughs> right. Um, I think about my own experiences where, you know, sometimes I would go to the doctor with my wife or at least when we our our children, when she was pregnant with our children. And sometimes they would only kind of look to my wife, you know, for questions mm-hmm. and things of that nature. And I would feel overlooked at times. Right. And so it's those kind of things that um, it's important for uh, folks through the different sectors to be aware of as it relates to fathers. And you would say, you know, just being present is like the starting block for for everything. Absolutely. Yeah, we got to show up. (laughs) We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with you on the other side. You are listening to Buffalo What's Next. Not sure what you want to watch tonight? We've got you covered. Visit WNED.org slash TV schedule to see what's on WNED PBS, WNED Create, and WNED PBS Kids. Click the primetime button to see what's on tonight. You can also search for your favorite programs in the search bar or look for programs by date and time. Visit WNED.org slash TV schedule and start making your viewing plans now. WNED Classical has been conducting interviews of their own on YouTube with the classical music community. Have you ever wondered what goes into the performances you hear on WNED Classical? Head on over to our Buffalo Toronto Public Media YouTube page to see the collection of interviews that we've orchestrated. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss the next one. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And we're back. I'm Thomas O'Neill White, and I'm talking black fatherhood and fatherhood in general with Buffalo Fatherhood Initiative Program Manager Antoine Johnson. Antoine, talk to us a little about the a little bit about the impact the fatherhood initiative is having on the community. Yeah, so I think for us, we are able to really highlight and raise the awareness about the important role and significance of fathers and in the lives of families and children. I I think that you know most folks who who have that experience they their family is intact and not broken and so forth just it's it's just really natural right but i think for um the larger community that it's important for us to continue to um help reshape that narrative around you know what a father really means is it are you taking a, a holistic approach to this is that is that would you say you would do that yes and no so a lot of our work is is done kind of uh you know just one part at a time you know we we do these groups through using a curriculum with the net nurturing fathers program which is evidence based um and then what we do is we take the the results and the testimonies and the transformations from the fathers um whose lives have been changed to a degree um and we leverage that to to help to really not only share their experiences, but also, again, 
uh, do what I've mentioned before in terms of um, highlighting the importance of fathers in a community. What are some of those testimonies? Yeah, so more often than not, you know, the fathers that go through our groups, they benefit from um, becoming better communicators in the lives of the children and their families. And so, you know, they talk about how they experience less conflict uh, with their partners and and children, Um, not so much with their children, but but they're better able to speak more in, in a nurturing tone. Right. Mm-hmm. Because they're learning about the, you know, the differences in terms of communication. You know, is there anything that stands out for you when working with these new fathers or fathers who are trying to be more involved with their children or their, their family? Um, what do they need to be successful fathers? Is mm-hmm. it ju- is it, you know, starting with presence, communication? What else? Yeah, I I think one of the things that the foundational piece is, is that fathers, men in general, we we need to feel like we matter. Um, Like when we show up to the table, that there's a difference, right? I think that's so important. Absolutely. We're not better than mom, um, but our contributions are unique. Mm -hmm. Um, When I speak to my daughter or, or need to correct her, um, apart from, from my wife, it's, it, it just, it resonates with her a little differently, you know, and I'm not more effective than my wife. We, yeah, I just play a different role in her life. Right. It's, it's maybe like two sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. It's, but that coin is all love. Right. You've got two kids, yes, right? Yes, sir. Yep. Um, given that and working with the group, um, what words of wisdom do you personally impart on them, on the men that you work with? Yeah. So, you know, do you ever wh- pull, pull guys aside and like, Hey, you know, this is, you can speak to them anecdotally about things that you've gone through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we have a team of four, uh, right now, which is, which is really good compared to, to, you know, the one man show over like two and a half years or so. So uh-huh. uh, we appreciate, we're appreciative of the growth and support from the community. Um, but I think for me, when, when I'm talking to guys, um, you know, one of the things is just, it's just being able to relate and empathize. Um, I like to share my own experiences sometime around, you know, how I was raising a, a a broken family, so to speak, uh, where my father wasn't as involved in my life. And so uh, that experience and kind of overcoming some of the um, hurt and and things related to that from my life, I'm I'm able to confidently um, and again, empathetically speak uh, to the guys in terms of you know, where they are. And not everyone has that experience. Again, I mentioned before how, you know, we have guys who have had fathers in their lives, but uh, sometimes their experiences, their father was present, um, but he might have been abusive or he was present, but they didn't really feel loved by him. Right. And so, again, there, there's a difference. Did your experience growing up lead you here? Yes. Yes. So I I joined the uh, organization Buffalo Prenatal in 2017, but it was just before that, I had gone through a program called the Fatherhood Connection. So it was brought in by a gentleman um, out of Rochester by the name of Reggie Cox. And I had to overcome something that I, I learned uh, to be termed as a father's pain, 
right? I had a lot of uh, resentment and things of that nature toward my father, and I, I was hurting. Um, and, and so I had to overcome those things and, and resolve those feelings toward my father in order to effectively serve some of the men today. Was it painful? Oh, yeah. Getting over that? Oh, yeah. It's not easy being vulnerable as a man. I think more often than not in our culture, and we talk about black fatherhood, right. there, there is this false narrative that black men need to always be strong, never show vulnerability that can be seen as weakness because you'll be seen as like soft in the community, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so I had, to, I had to get over all that stuff because the reality was I— had to think about, you know, those that would come after me, right? Like my children. Now I have a son who I have to help him understand that it's okay to be emotional and it's okay to um, show anger in a a healthy and positive way when you need to let stuff out, right? And so going through those experiences helped me to become a better father and a man for my community. And I can see uh, our producer, Charles, Back there, nodding along with what you're saying. He's a father, too. He understands. Um, can you talk a little bit about the fourth annual conference? When was that? Yeah, so that one was back uh, mid-October. And so those conferences are great ways for us to highlight some of the the work that we've done and some of the things that we feel is relevant to the community around fathers and families. And so we were able to bring in folks from out of state and, and different things of that nature in order to do that work. What is What was relevant? What were the relevant topics? Yeah, one of the, the topics that really stood out, we had a speaker come from um, Louisville, and uh, he talked about the importance of fathers, specifically black fathers, around co-parenting relationships mm-hmm. and how, you know, even when the two don't work out romantically, how important it is to be supportive of one another for the well-being of that child or children that are in a family. As a uh, child of a black father from Louisville, got to agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, what else from the conference uh, stood out to you? Yeah, one of the things, so our theme for this past year was Hope Giver. And so that was all about the importance of uh, recognizing that fathers need hope. And the way that we come to understand hope was that hope was defined as what we were able to do in the midst of adversity, right? What action were we able to take in order to get past that level of adversity and move forward? Um, and so it was also fathers being able to give hope to their children, right? So now that if they have hope, they were able to give it to their family and their children. What do you hope to give to your children? That's a great question. I I think for me it is to leave a legacy of nurturance, trust, faith, and and commitment. Again, like I said, I I grew up in a a society would deem like a a broken family, right? Not Mm -hmm. the traditional mom and dad relationship. And so I, I want that togetherness from my wife to, to be modeled before them so that they know when they get older what a, what a healthy, relatively healthy relationship looks like. And my wife and I are not perfect, um, but I hope that they're able to see that stability and love from us and pass it on. When working in the Fatherhood Initiative, there is is there work being done like, you know, partner to partner? 
mm-hmm. instead of just in as a side to uh, partner and, and or father and children? Mm-hmm. Is there like man and wife? Yeah, so we, we have a segment in our Nurtured Fathers program where we have in the past brought in the partners um, or the wife in one of the sessions, and mm-hmm. they kind of share their perspectives on their partner, right? So sometimes <laughs> the guys like to pump themselves up and make them, <laughs> you know, <laughs> seem like it better than better than what it is, right? right? So so the moms or the partners, they, you know, they'll give the real opinion. And so that's always cool. And, yeah, and so that's what we've done. <laughs> Um, we've got, we've got, uh, a few minutes left. Mm-hmm. Um, and the last thing I wanted to ask you is, um, for our listeners listening today, maybe a struggling father mm-hmm. or a guy struggling with his relationships, mm-hmm. what's something you'd like to, to leave yes. our listeners with today? Yes. Yeah, so interestingly enough, I was listening to a gentleman that I have a lot of respect for. His name is Jason Wilson out of Detroit. And he said something um, you know, that relates to our topic today. And it was for fathers to live from what you longed to receive from your dad, not what you never had. Right. So I think a lot of times um, us as, as men, we, we usually will only impart what our experiences were. If we came from a broken family, then, then our bent is to create a family that is broken right Right. um but but the idea here around that quote is to be what you you didn't have give what you wanted if you wanted love or affection from your father then give that to your child what you longed for Mm, mm, powerful stuff powerful stuff um before we go i just wanna i want to send a shout out to my younger brother will who is a father and my sister-in-law Vanessa, and they're almost one-year-old, turning one in on on Sunday. Uh, little baby Francis, give a shout out to you. Happy birthday! And I will see you this weekend. You are listening to Buffalo. What's next? Our daily discussion on race, education, segregation, and equity in the aftermath of five fourteen. I want to thank Antoine Johnson, the program manager for Buffalo Fatherhood Initiative, for joining us today. Thank you, brother. Absolutely. Appreciate your time. This is WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station. 